0: Our gospel lesson comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 30. Listen now for the word of the Lord. You have heard it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When was the last time you sinned? How did you know it was a sin? Was it because you broke one of the Ten Commandments? Was it because growing up someone taught you about sin? Or was it somehow self-evident? Did it come in between you and someone you love? Did it make you unhappy with yourself? Some of you might feel uncomfortable with talking about sin. Sin language might feel like it ignores the forgiveness offered in Christ. Sin language focuses on the wrong thing, you might say. What matters most is who Jesus is, not who we are. Or you might see that too great an emphasis on sin will cause shame, not repentance. These are all thoughtful responses, but I personally cannot dispense with sin language. In the past decade, I've witnessed too much evil to do away with talk of sin. Violence and hate in media, government, and especially the church have led me to reclaim sin language as a tool to explain how we got here and how we can respond. We must be brave enough to name the sins of our culture if we ever hope to repent. We must be mature enough to have nuanced costly conversations about sin if we ever hope to repair the damage that have driven so many away from Jesus. Sin language gives us the tools to understand authentic repentance. It can shape our moral imagination such that we come to see sin and repentance as both an individual and collective effort. So today we will talk about sin, but only because by talking about sin first can we understand and enter into repentance. Matthew chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just started his ministry and quickly gained a following. His ascent up the mountain should make us think of Moses who climbed a mountain to receive the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel especially, is the new Moses, so it follows that Jesus' teaching will correspond to the type of moral law that God delivered through Moses. Verses 1-16 through contain the Beatitudes and Jesus' teaching on salt and light, but in verse 17 we are given the thesis statement of Jesus' greatest sermon. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One cannot overstate the importance of this passage in Scripture. Volumes have been written, careers have risen and fallen with these words, and denominations have been formed and dissolved as a consequence. These words are of profound importance because they reveal the heart of God. What brings God joy and what is unacceptable to God? Is the law of Moses to govern those who call Jesus Lord? Or is Jesus' teaching and ministry meant to set a new standard? In other words, does Jesus reveal the heart of God in the same way as the law of Moses? I think too often we perceive the ethical mandates in the Bible as God's rule book. As if God has a score sheet that keeps a tally of our sins in one column and a tally of our good deeds in the other. But this makes too little of what is at stake. God is described throughout the Bible as a loving father and we are his children. Our sin tears us away from God. Anyone who has seen a child forcibly removed from their parents understands the severity of that separation. God longs to be near to us, to rear us into spiritual maturity and sin is like a cage that comes in between us and God. It is with this grave concern that Jesus frames his teaching on sin. Jesus has stated he has not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it and so it makes sense that the following verses will quote from that law. You've heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus directly quotes the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But then he raises the standard to include even anger as a violation of that commandment. This is the first of six antitheses found in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus restates the Mosaic Law and then raises the standard. There are at least two reasons why Jesus does this. The first is that Jesus is taking the Mosaic Law in filtering it through an apocalyptic lens. Chesna has taught wonderfully on this, how Paul did this in Galatians, but like everything in Paul, Jesus did it first. If we ask why the law, you shall not murder, was written in the first place, it's quite obvious. Murder is bad. Murder is a sin because it separates us from God. A world without murder would be a much better place. Jesus agrees with this, but shifts the paradigm. Don't imagine a world without murder. Imagine instead a world without anger. Three times in Matthew, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven isn't just a place where the murder rate drops to zero. It is the peaceable kingdom where anger doesn't exist. Not because anger is made illegal by a commandment, but because the causes for anger don't exist. Jesus is pulling back the curtain to give us a view of the the kingdom of heaven. He is giving us a foretaste of how things will be. Jesus recognizes that thought fathers the deed. Premeditation gives way to action. It isn't enough to just tell someone that murder is wrong, they must also be told that the causes of murder are also wrong. The second reason Jesus restates the Mosaic Law before adding to it is that he wants to do away with abstractions. Similar to our U.S. Constitution, the Mosaic Law in Jesus' day had been studied and analyzed and interpreted and reinterpreted countless times such that scholars twisted its meaning to say whatever they wanted it to say. Strict literalists had argued that anything short of murder is permissible because the sixth commandment clearly states you shall not murder. On the other hand, some interpreters see the Ten Commandments as a living document and so argue that the extent of its application is subject to interpretation. Jesus hates this. This is his primary problem with the scribes and the Pharisees who serve as his opponent in Matthew's gospel. The scribes and the Pharisees are the authorities on scripture for the Jewish people in Jesus' day and they have elevated the very simple act of understanding God's law to an unattainable level. Following God's law allows the people of God to be in close relationship with him, and the Pharisees have made following the law into a terrible burden. The other effect of abstraction has been that the law is made distant to the average person. Because the average person will not struggle with keeping the sixth commandment. The vast majority of people will not kill someone else without even trying. But anger, anger is something the vast majority of people will be guilty of on a regular basis. Jesus makes the case that anger poses a threat that is more real, more present, and more dire than murder. This is well illustrated by the end of verse 21, where Jesus says, If you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. The phrase hell of fire is translated from the Greek word gehenna. And gehenna itself comes from the Hebrew valley of the son of Hinnom. It was a real place, a valley outside of Jerusalem. And in the centuries before Jesus' time, Gehenna was the site for cultic child sacrifice among Jewish kings who had gone astray. The ritual involved passing their children through fire as burnt offerings to the god Melech. And in the time since then, in Jesus' day, the valley became a site where trash was collected and burned. It is also the location where bodies of executed criminals and individuals denied a proper burial would be dumped. I labor through the gruesome detail of this to show you that reality is always darker than our imagination. Lived experience is more dire than hypotheticals. The translation Hell of Fire likely inspires Dante's somewhat cartoonish vision of hell. Or maybe you think of a man with horns and a pitchfork. Unfortunately, our translation hides Jesus' actual illustration. He calls his Jewish followers to remember a time when their king sacrificed infants to foreign gods by fire. To recall a place they could visit that day, where the stench of burning human flesh never ceased. This is Jesus' image of hell. A place where you might end up if your anger gets the best of you, if your insults offend the wrong person and you are handed over to a corrupt government. Murder is an easy hypothetical to dismiss. Anger is an ever-present threat. Jesus warns us to take seriously the sins born of anger. Jesus continues, So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. There existed a purity law that required anyone entering the temple for sacrifice to clean their outer garment before coming in. Jesus shifts the focus from the purity of the exterior to the purity of their interior. He has in mind the idea that we never sin against one another without also sinning against God. At the same time, we cannot hope to be reconciled to our brother or sister by focusing on God instead. The idea is that sin is not removed by doing good deeds. Sin must be addressed through repentance. Verse 27, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks on a a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, Jesus is... Contrasting the hypothetical greater commandment against adultery with the more real and present threat of lust. No abstractions. Let's focus on the heart of the matter. What Jesus is doing to the moral law is redirecting our focus from the causes of sin to the effects of sin. Imagine an Olympic medal platform where bronze is the lowest and then silver, and gold is the highest. Jesus is not flattening all sins to be equally offensive. He's not lowering gold and silver so that they're equal to bronze. Rather, Jesus is heightening all sins so that their effects are seen equally. Because no matter the sin, murder or adultery, anger or lust, the effect of the sin is separation between sinner and God. Finally, We have the most inflammatory portion of this scripture. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. This entire section has been a word of warning to the followers of Jesus and I'd argue it's been it's you should take it literally you should take it seriously but I'm going to argue that this particular command should be taken figuratively. I believe this section is figurative not because Jesus is soft on sin, not because sin doesn't have consequences and not because Jesus doesn't believe in sacrifice and righteousness. Instead, I believe this section is figurative because Jesus' command, if followed literally, doesn't work. Humans have an insatiable capacity for sin. So even if we ripped our eyes out and cut off our hands, we would still find ways to sin. The prescribed medicine Jesus gives, in fact, isn't too extreme. It's not extreme enough. It isn't that losing our body parts would be too costly, it's that it isn't costly enough. We must give our entire bodies, our minds, and our spirits to God. We must submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ if we ever hope to escape our enslavement to sin. In other words, what good is it to have a single eye freed of enslavement to sin while the rest of your body remains in a cage? What good is a single hand given to holiness when the rest of your body remains in chains? Do not think that only giving a part of yourself to God will suffice. Instead, hear the words of our Apostle Paul. What are we then to say? Should we continue to sin in order that grace may increase? By no means! How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. So just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we might also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. So we might no longer be enslaved to sin, for whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You here today, if you have been baptized, you do not need to fear talk of sin. You don't need to worry about whether you have been freed and set on a new path. Instead, let the reality of sin guide you into a new life offered in Christ, in which repentance is your defining characteristic. Be wise and informed in the ways sin has shaped the world and seek to reshape the world through your repentance in Christ. If you are here and you have not yet been baptized, I encourage you to receive this gift. In baptism, we are received into this community of repentance. We receive a grace of God which leads to new life. And best of all, we receive adoption by a God who will never turn his back, never stop pursuing us, and never stop loving us. Amen.